Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Welcome to the July 11th edition of Macro Minutes, uh, which I'm dubbing Defying Gravity. I'm Blake Wynn, Head of U.S. Rate Strategy, your host for today's call, uh, which we're recording at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on July 11th. So the big story over the last week uh, has been the break higher of a number of global fixed income markets. As central banks are left to deal with still tight labor markets and strong economic activity, uh, along with core inflation that's generally not falling fast enough for their comfort. While in some cases markets have started to come around to expectations for higher respected terminal rates, most of this recent move higher in yields has come on the back of markets finally starting to believe major central banks' rhetoric on not cutting rates in the foreseeable future. Of course, that goes hand-in-hand with the fact that economic data has generally remained robust, making near-term recession calls harder and harder to justify. Despite some give-back over the last few sessions, pens in both U.S. and Germany are still well above April and June ranges and back near levels reached just prior to the banking stress in March, while 10-year gilts have surpassed the highs in yields reached after the September 2022 budget mishap. Notably, these moves have come against the backdrop of what seems to be a long bias in markets, with positioning indicators pointing to long uh, positioning across investors, and evidence of dip buying on yield backups, as well as a near unanimous consensus to be long rates coming from our compatriots across the sell side. So the question now is whether this breakout remains a short-lived sojourn with markets quickly falling back into prior ranges, or whether old rate ceilings have now become the floors. To speak to that and other issues, we have a great lineup of speakers for you today. We're going to start off with Jason Dahl, head of North American Rate Strategy, to talk about Canada and the BOC decision this week. Then we'll head over to U.S. economist Mike Reed to discuss last week's U.S. labor market data, which partially helped to trigger the recent sell-off, along with expectations for tomorrow's CPI report. Then I'll hop back on to briefly discuss the move in U.S. rates and FOMC expectations. Uh, Then we'll have Peter Schaffrick, head of the U.K. and European rate strategy, to discuss the recent breakout from the European perspective. Then head of U.S. equity strategy, Lori Calvacino, will discuss how equity markets are handling the economic data and rising yields. And finally, we'll pass it over to Chief Australian Economist Sue Lin Ong to discuss the move in Australian rates and the RBA outlook. So with that, I will hand it over to Jason Dahl uh, to discuss Canada. Okay, thanks a lot, Blake. Uh, so today I'm going to discuss uh, the Bank of Canada meeting tomorrow and also the medium-term outlook for the BOC. So our forecast after the June meeting was for a follow-on uh, 25 basis point hike at the bank's uh, July meeting, which is tomorrow. Their hawkish language in June, coupled with uh, firm and sticky growth and inflation data, uh, does argue for them to not skip a beat and deliver another rate increase uh, tomorrow. So market pricing, it has gravitated towards our view over the past week, and consensus is firmly in the camp of a BOC hike. So while a 25 basis point hike is consensus, and that's embedded in market pricing, uh, the BOC has shown a penchant to surprise uh, over the past year, so nothing can be truly ruled out as far as what they might uh, do. Then the question is, um, you know, what are the things that could surprise the market and potentially cause outside moves? Um, On the low probability kind of hawkish surprise side, that could include uh, greater emphasis on higher neutral rates, materially stronger growth or inflation forecasts, and um, explicit guidance for additional uh, rate hikes. On the dovish surprise side, that could include um, the bank um, focusing on policy lags 
and um, even on the lower probability spectrum, another conditional pause. So again, these are low probability events that could have uh, outsized uh, market moves. Now, beyond July, the market's pricing a 50-50 chance of another uh, rate hike, which seems you know, probably fair. But I would say that uh, the BOC is probably inclined to hike further, and the onus is on the data to come in materially weaker <clears throat> for another pause to unfold. Now, looking even further out, um, we have penciled in a modest rate cutting cycle that brings the policy rate down to 3.5% starting in the second quarter of next year. But the risk to that view is that the cutting cycle starts uh, later uh, rather than sooner. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Blake. Thank you, Jason. Uh, And now we will go over to uh, Mike Reed to discuss uh, U.S. data. Great. Thank you, Blake. So uh, last week, you know, we had a kind of a surprise in the payroll report in that uh, expectations were quite high from ADP. Um, but if you take that away, uh, the the official NFP report was uh, still quite solid. And we're seeing the strength in other labor market metrics, whether you're looking at the unemployment rate ticking back down to 3.6%, uh, the quits rate uh, moved back up, um, and, and even claims, whether initial or continued, uh, are, are drifting back down from their recent highs. Uh, still, we have to acknowledge the, uh, the slowing in the growth of the uh, headline there, and it's something we're watching closely. Uh, if you look at the uh, diffusion index, which uh, measures the percentage of industries uh, that are growing, that fell to uh, 58% in June. That's down from 69% just a year ago and just below the median of 60% since 1991. So what's really interesting here, it's, it's really three uh, sectors that are driving the growth. Uh, that's healthcare, leisure and hospitality, and government, specifically state and local in particular. So these three sectors have accounted for over half of the total job gains we've seen since last July. Um, but two in particular, and that's leisure and hospitality and then the state and local government, have yet to fully recover to their pre-pandemic levels. Um, so much of the strength we're seeing right now in the headline growth might be better characterized as a continuation of the recovery rather than new job growth. So you know, looking ahead here, uh, a slowdown in any one of these sectors will have a noticeable impact on the headline change. Shifting quickly to uh, CPI coming out tomorrow, our forecast calls for an advance of three-tenths uh, on the month in core, as well as three-tenths uh, in headline. This would bring the uh, year-over-year pace down to uh, 5% for core and 3.2% for headline, respectively. And while the, uh, the three-tenths uh, advance for core would be a welcome deceleration from last month, we saw a, a, an advance of four-tenths in May, um, at 5% year-over-year, core is still uncomfortably high for the Fed. Um, most recently, the, the path lower to 2% was stalled by uh, the uptick in used car prices, um, but we're looking for a reversal this month, and that should help push core lower. Um, we still see continued pressure in auto insurance. Um, that has averaged 1.3% month-over-month gains uh, this past year. Uh, as well as uh, shelter that's in the form of rent and owner's equivalent, um, those have averaged about five, uh, five-tenths month over month for the past uh, three months, despite uh, the hitting their peaks last September. Nonetheless, in a sign that broad inflation pressure is easing, the six-month average diffusion, uh, looking at the 15 top-line categories, fell to six from 11 last May. 
and the one-month diffusion count fell to five categories. So, again, signs that uh, price pressure is easing. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Blake to talk about what it means for the Fed coming up in July. Thanks, Mike. Um, you know, so as, as we've uh, heard from Mike here, I mean, I think the case for, um, you know, a, a, a near-term economic slowdown and a case for, you know, rates to move considerably and sustainably lower from here, it's getting very, very difficult to make. You know, for one, the data has remained much more resilient than I think pretty much anyone had predicted earlier this year. You add on to that the fact that expectations around banking sector stress in, in early March uh, having some type of large impact, um, you, know, you know, greatly accelerating the tightening in financial conditions, that just hasn't come to pass. And I think doubts about lagged effects finally showing up are, are starting to crop up, and that's true even within the Fed ranks. I think we saw in the minutes and uh, from Lori Logan's speech last week, basically just questions around whether or not, you know, the impact of these uh, rate hikes that have already been delivered has already largely been felt or whether we expect that to, to come back and crop up at some point in the coming months. You know, you, you, you take this kind of uh, uh, idea that, that, that that case is getting much more difficult to make, and I think it does argue that uh, the risk to terminal are certainly to the upside. But I think even if market pricing for terminal is currently correct, you know, rates could continue to rise if the data remains strong. I think a lot of that comes on cuts getting continually pushed out, but I think eventually markets could start calling into question longer run our star, that kind of neutral rate that's priced further out into the Fed curve, or even, um, you know, start to push higher on inflation expectations that the Fed is basically seen getting behind the curve or, or you know, remaining stubbornly, stubbornly slow in the face of data that's remaining strong, stronger than expected, or, or even reaccelerating. You know, even aside from, from that, I think hawkishness that other central banks around the globe could uh, keep U.S. yields moving higher as well, even if the Fed is resistant or further tightening. And lastly, I would add on that supply and de- uh, demand dynamics are likely going to start serving as a headwind for rates with uh, Treasury likely to start upping coupon issuance again, and some of the major sources of demand, um, you know, whether that's Japanese investors due to uh, uh, her- currency hedging costs, you know, China, given what's happening in the currency, and banks who are shrinking asset portfolios, you've kind of lost those those major sources of demand, and we see those remaining largely out of the picture. So, um, again, supply and demand uh, dynamics also serving as somewhat of a headwind here. So, um, overall, I think we see, uh, you know, a pretty strong case for, for rates continuing to grind higher. But at this point, it's very difficult um, to position. And one of the reasons why we have fairly low conviction on the outright level of duration right now is that even though, you know, we, we put fairly low probability, especially in comparison uh, to the probability for, for higher rates, the probability for uh, a move lower rates we see is fairly low right now. But if that case does come to pass, uh, the degree to which rates could move in either direction is very skewed. I think the slowdown in the Fed's pace, this kind of uh, uh, fear among investors that they're going to miss this big turn in the rate environment, and you know we see that kind of manifesting in dip buying and other things, I think that essentially caps how much the sell-off can really move. But in the downside, if we do have you know some kind of unforeseen event risk cr- uh, crop up, uh, the degree to which rates could rally is quite sharp. So you know higher rates, we see a higher probability but a lower degree of move. Lower rates, we see a lower probability, but a much greater degree, degree to which rates could move in the downside. And that leaves us, as I said, with, with fairly low conviction on the outright level. Just real quickly on curve, I think I'm a bit more comfortable saying that the recent steepening at some point uh, seems like it needs to run out of fundamental steam here. Um, notably, the re-steepening we've had over the last week has, has been a bearish one. And I just see very little economic or policy just, justification for that type a move to continue. That is really a, a full-on reacceleration trade, in my view. This is in contrast to the, the prior 
periods of re-steepening where, where we've seen the curve and investors try to get in and, and re-steepen that curve. Those have generally been of the bullish variety. They've come on uh, events such as SVB where uh, really what was happening was uh, markets were seeing a much greater risk of cuts coming, you know, pulling up that cutting path, deepening that cutting path in the near term. Um, this is much different than that. But like I said, I, I just really don't see the case for either one of those moves right now. I don't see this as being uh, signs of a, a significant reacceleration trade. But for this to really switch over to a bullish deepening, which I think would have more legs, you know, without that economic case for a downturn and without those cuts being pulled back forward, there's really no reason for that as well. And with the cutting cycle so far off, I still feel it's, you know, we're still in this kind of flattening environment. And at some point, the steepening does run out of steam and, and we probably return back to uh, some of the flats of the cycle. With that, uh, I will pause and we will pass it on over to Peter. Thank you, Mike. So the perspective from Europe um, is roughly as follows. So we, as you mentioned at the very beginning, um, we have seen a noticeable sell-off and a breakout of the trading ranges that we had in the euro market. Bunds were now are now trading um, north of the 255 um, level that has capped them for most of the time over the last 10 months. Um, in the UK, we've seen a break higher above the 450, which was the high that we've seen um, in October, September, October time when we had the minute budget situation. Now, ironically, this has not been triggered by our domestic data. It has been triggered by the labor market data coming out of the US. In fact, when I look at the underlying data that comes out mainly out of the euro area, and I'll say something specific about the UK in a second, it has been um, showing some signs of weakness, um, particularly the survey data. Uh, so the survey data, but the PMIs or other surveys that show um, confidence um, in, um, in businesses and, and consumption has pinged up um, around Q1 um, and in late Q2, but has for the last two months or so started to come off the boil. Now, that is particularly true for services um, because the manufacturing sector has been in the doldrums anyway. <clears throat> so the question that presents itself is we have an environment in which, um, as is everywhere the case, the labor market remains very firm. Inflation is coming down but remains too high for comfort. The central banks remain in a hawkish environment, but the forward-looking indicators um, seem to be turning down a bit. Now, the, the, the one additional um, caveat, uh, I would say, particularly for the survey data, is that over the last year or so, it has not been a particularly good um, um, indicator for where ultimately activity is going, where GDP is going, because it has um, surprised to the downside when the indicators were on the way up and has um, surprised the upside when the indicators were on the way down. So um, the market, I think, has quite a few question marks over the reliability of that. And that leaves us in a situation where you have to take the guidance from essentially the central banks, and the market is pricing 4% for the ECB. Uh, again, I'll say something more about the UK in a second. And that seems to be a reasonable estimate. It's also our forecast, so we think two more rate hikes are coming over the next two meetings before pause will set in. I think that leaves us also with a slight drift to the upside, although we haven't seen a follow-through um, after the breakout um, that we had last week. Uh, but it probably leaves us with a bit of a drift to the upside in yields, just like Blake has just been describing for the U.S. 
Now, the one additional caveat I would like to make for the UK is that the UK data, generally speaking, has surprised to the upside. The market has been pricing a, a very aggressive path for the Bank of England. Obviously, the Bank of England, to some degree, has obliged the last time around when they hiked 50 basis points. Um, and the market is now pricing a not 100% probability, but a pretty high probability that they would go by 50 basis points again. So what that means is that the monetary policy setting or the um, financial um, policy setting in the UK appears quite tight, um, and it is a question mark uh, about the time lags rather than anything um, that this is fighting. And this is exactly the discussions that we are having with our clients um, about how long does it take in the UK before these relatively high interest rates have an impact on the economy. I think it's fair to say that at this point, um, we haven't really seen the impact yet. And when you look at the um, surprise indicators, the data has continuously surprised to the upside. I think that also leaves the UK market with a bit of a bias to upside in yield, although given that the sheer level that we are already at, um, it's much more harder, I think, than for the euro market. So I have uh, even less conviction um, on that for the UK market. Bottom line is, we see sometimes some, a little bit of weakening in the, uh, in the underlying data. Whether that has any meaningful legs remains to be seen. In the meantime, the central banks remain on a hiking path and remain relatively hawkish, which gives the market an upside bias in yield terms. And we'll have to see whether or not the activity data, and particularly the labor market data going forward, we can su sufficiently to change that bigger picture. And with that, I'll leave it and hand it back to Blake. All right, thanks. Uh, let's go over to Lori for the view from equity space. Thanks, Blake, and good morning, everybody. So I just wanted to share two quick thoughts from a U.S. equity market perspective. Um, takeaway number one, since the jobs report, we've been talking a lot about, and we're going to get a lot of inbound questions, frankly, on why the Russell 2000 has been so strong. And what we've told people, it's not just the Russell 2000 that's been you know, showing some good movement. You've actually seen outperformance within the S&P 500 from cyclical sectors like energy and materials, industrials, and financials. We have seen some underperformance from growth sectors like tech and communication services, but the real underperformers that we've noticed, especially relative to tech, um, have been some of the defensive areas of the market. So on balance, I think the internals are pretty help are pretty healthy. Uh, we're seeing signs of a desire to rotate within the equity market, not necessarily uh, panic about the Fed's next move. And we think that's interesting um, just from the perspective of, you know, we've gotten a lot of questions about the breadth in the market recently, how it's been so narrow. Does this portend really negative things for equities? And we've told people, you know, if you actually look when you have very few stocks making new highs on a 52-week basis, you actually do tend to see equities up over the next 12 months. That narrowness is not necessarily um, a sign that the market is about to crack. Sometimes it is a sign that the market is about to rotate. Um, I have actually, just in terms of my own calls, liked small caps. I've been overweight them relative to large. We've liked energy. We've been overweight there within the S&P 500. And we actually upgraded financials to overweight this morning within the S&P 500. So a lot of this price action I'm seeing in the, in the data just makes a lot of sense just based as well on work I do on things like earnings revisions, valuations, and flows. Um, I'll move on to takeaway number two. I did want to flag to the group that this morning we did publish our first RBC Global Equity Analyst Survey, which captures the views of our analysts in the U.S., Europe, Canada, and Australia um, on a number of different issues, just really basic outlook questions as well as some hot topic issues as well. Um, we did aggregate our analyst industry views up to GIC sector level one details, and we also aggregated them up to regional views. And I would say on balance, that report got me more excited with, about the idea of taking on cyclical risk. 
Um, in terms of some of the main takeaways across the globe, our analysts still did tilt slightly positive in terms of their outlooks for performance over the next 6 to 12 months. They also had a slightly positive tilt on valuation, the current state of demand, the impact of artificial intelligence, and it wasn't just tech analysts who felt that. Um, we had a question on company liquidity in the aftermath of the banking crisis, and generally the interpretation of what's going on there was pretty favorable. We had another question on are you seeing evidence of recession pressure in your industry, and generally our analysts were pointing to the lack of that evidence. The only issue our analysts really came out negative on, and these were very, very slight tilts, uh, were margins, um, and then also just how their own views on the macro and its impact on their industry have shifted in recent months. So frankly, that was closer to flat within the U.S. In terms of sector views, across the globe, our analysts were most constructive on healthcare and most negative on consumer staples. Regionally, their performance outlooks were strongest for Europe, but it is worth noting that the U.S. was seen as the biggest beneficiary of AI and had the, had the lowest or best score in terms of perception of recession pressures. Um, there's a lot of meat in this report, too much to run through here. I would urge you to check it out. Um, but I would just say a lot of the sectors, when we looked region by region, that jumped out to me in terms of looking good in the eyes of my analysts as well as my own quant work were cyclical in nature. So that was financials in the U.S., which, as I mentioned, we upgraded today. Um, also, we had um, a, sort of a constructive view on financials in Europe and materials in Australia. And that's it for me, and I'll pass the call back over to Blake. All right. Thanks a lot. And lastly, uh, let's head over to Sue Lin for uh, the antipodium perspective. Thanks, Blake. The Australian bond market has traded pretty poorly since the RBA's steady rate decision last Tuesday. It's broken through some key levels and it's underperformed much of the global fixed income sell-off last week. Positioning may be part of it, but we also think the stop-start nature of the RBA's tightening cycle at this juncture is not particularly helpful and it definitely adds to the uncertainty over the likely peak in rates and the timing. With core inflation above 6%, a labour market that's well beyond full employment with an unemployment rate down at 3.5%, rising wages and unit labour costs, and annual population growth pushing above 2%, policy needs to be a little bit more restrictive. The prudent thing in our view would be to move to a tighter stance sooner rather than later. By dollar block standards, the cash rate is still quite low at 4.1%. We think at least one more hike is likely and the curve can flatten further. The Aussie curve has broken through some key levels, flirting in negative territory for the first time since the global financial crisis, but by global standards, it still remains pretty steep. It should also lag any global steepening when this global tightening cycle peaks and markets inevitably think about easing. For investors looking for duration, Australia is not a bad place to get some exposure. Also in focus in Australia at the moment is who the next RBA governor will be, with an announcement by the Treasurer expected any day now. Governor Lowe's term finishes in mid-September, and while there is the possibility of some kind of extension, the odds favour a new governor. The head of the Department of Finance, as well as the Treasury Secretary, plus the current Deputy Governor, are all considered frontrunners, with the possibility of an outsider that's not from the official family also in the mix. There may be some immediate implications for RBA policy um, and markets as well. Some potential governors are more dovish than others, in our view. The current governor still has two more meetings in August and September, and we expect a hike at at least one of these meetings, probably August. Back to you, Blake. All right. Thanks, Sulin. Uh, and that wraps up uh, the, the uh, prepared comments section of our call. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. 
It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.